Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, it's good to see each of you here this morning and a beautiful fall morning out there. I tell you what, it is always a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. And uh, thank you for coming on Time Change Sunday. Aren't we glad that Jesus never changes? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Maybe California could learn a little bit. I'll tell you that. But uh, actually, the, the fall time change is always good for church because uh, people seem like they always show up. And uh, the spring one, that's a little different story. Those of you that are watching online, our family, we love you. I know some of you are not feeling well. And uh, we pray God's uh, richest graces. We sang, may you just give it and give it and give it again. All right, we are on the Sermon on the Mount. This is our third installment. We're in the Beatitudes, happiness. We're going to take two of them. Happiness is humbling yourself before God and pleading for righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest single standalone message ever preached in the history of the world. And thank God we have been blessed to have it transcribed for us by the Holy Spirit. Not only in the book of Matthew, but not as complete, but also in the book of Luke, as well as a bit in Mark. It is his, our Lord's first recorded sermon. Now, of course, he preached so much more and probably preached this sermon either in part or entirety in other times. In fact, in the book of John, chapter 21, and verse 25, John said, there are many other things which Jesus did and said, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. In the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now you know that the four, there are four Gospels. The first three are called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, S-Y-N meaning same, optic meaning same look, just kind of a little different viewpoint. Each of the four Gospels has kind of a little different theme. It's very clear when you begin to read it. For example, the book of Mark, which portrays Jesus as a servant, at least in the King James, every verse pretty much begins with the word and. That makes sense because Jesus is always busy doing something else and this and this and this. You may know that the book of Matthew was written to portray Jesus as king, not just portraying, but to reveal him, perhaps a better word, as king. 
Repeatedly through the book of Matthew, we see his kingliness. Whether it is his kingly line through Joseph in the genealogy, whether it is a biography of the Magi, which we call the wise men, who were used to traveling with kings. Whether it is his dominion over Satan, which is, gets a, a very clear view in the book of Matthew, displaying that he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Whether we see his creative acts, which we see him as Almighty God. All of it reminds us of the infallible proof that Jesus is sovereign. In fact, the word sovereign even has the word reign in it because that is in fact the case. He is reigning. In Matthew chapter five through seven, he presents kingdom laws. Laws that are not of this world, but are laws none the same. They are laws that work and they are laws that are blessings. Maybe promises might be a good word. In this time, they are, we are seeing attitudes that are part of the kingdom. Now Jesus' presentation, known as the Sermon on the Mount, is masterful. Absolutely the greatest ever. Yet it was unexpected. The people were caught off guard because what he was offering them was a way to happiness that they had never in their life ever heard. The first, he starts off the message with a group of principles known as the Beatitudes, or at least we've called them that. Attitudes that ought to be in any, certainly any good Christian. Now it was different because it was unique principles. Now they knew how to be spiritually proud, especially the religious crowd. They knew how to be self-sufficient. They were a hardworking Jewish people. They knew about religion, every kind of a religion that was in that area, both uh, the Judaism, pagan religions, they, they knew about religion. And yet, for the most part, almost everybody really didn't have much happiness. The Roman soldiers weren't happy. The Roman uh, leaders weren't happy. The Jewish leaders weren't happy. The common workers weren't happy. The political people weren't happy. The ladies weren't happy. The kids weren't happy. Pretty much, for the most part, they were just an unhappy group. And so it really is powerful that Jesus stands up and begins by saying, I'm going to tell you how to be happy. The fact of the matter is, 2,000 years ago, in a little Middle Eastern strip of land is not much unlike today. It is said that six weeks before he died, a reporter asked rock and roll's king of Elvis Presley, Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. You are rich and you are now famous. Are you happy? And in a moment of unvarnished honesty, he said, no, I'm lonely as hell. You talk about a re reality check. The fact of the matter is his sentiment is what I'm reading and hearing more and more today. I believe that this generation we live in could be called the gloomy generation. 
I have never seen so much doom and gloom in all my life. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, gave a generation of not a whole lot unlike ours. Look, I'm going to tell you how you can have a happy marriage, a happy home. You can live a fulfilled life. Amazing, timeless wisdom that all these centuries later still are guaranteed to give us happiness. Not some kind of a foo-foo happiness. I'm talking about a genuine joy. And that's what we're going to see this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. Would you join me in prayer? You know the difference between uh, speaking at a college or speaking in a classroom, perhaps, and preaching is that we must have the Spirit of God to interpret Scripture. And so that's why we invite Him. Maybe that's why David said, Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you join me in that prayer? Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. More importantly, open our hearts, God. May we be not only ready to hear it, but to do what you say. Spirit of God, lead us. Help me to say everything I need to say, even those things maybe which were unplanned. And then, Lord, to just block my mind to things which perhaps I thought I was going to say, and yet you don't want said. I pray that through it all, Lord, you would just bring us to your word and bring your word to us. God, thank you for this amazing group of people who joined to take this time to really seek you. And Lord, you said those that seek you early will find you. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's review just for a bit. Let's go to verse number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to be happy, we must realize our spiritual poverty. It is absolutely the first step to get to know God. It is the true basis for all lasting happiness. It is often said that the first step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. And I believe that's what this blessing, this beatitude means. Denial is not only a killer in this world, it is a joy killer for sure. The old story is this. A desert nomad was awakened hungry in the middle of the night. He lit a candle and began to eat dates from the bowl beside his bed. He took a bite from one date and saw a worm. He threw it out of his tent, bit into a second date, found another worm. He threw it away and then Realizing, reasoning, he said, if I keep throwing these dates out, I won't have any dates left to eat. And so what did he do? He just blew out the candle quickly and then ate the rest of the dates. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, that's a good picture of our contemporary society. People prefer darkness and denial to the light of God, to real happiness. We just keep eating our wormy dates when we could just get an answer from God. Spiritual poverty. Oh, God, I need you. I cannot do life without you. That's what the first beatitude really says. The second one is in verse 4. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What, a, what an amazing icebreaker to this message. Folks, I need you to get sad. What? What are you talking about? Well, actually, not the same as mourning, but mourning is 
clearing the air with God in a godly way. It is true repentance. The fact of the matter is, we cannot move forward until we repair the past. You know, it's pretty hard to make any real progress on a flat tire. Fix the tire, then we can start moving. And many need to fix that tire with God. We're busy trying to get to the next level with God. And God said, you have a need that you go back to the beginning things. Repair it, repent, clear the air with the Lord, and then we can move on. And that's what Jesus was saying. Realize your spiritual poverty and then spend some time repenting. Just clear the air with the Lord. Tell him you're sorry. You agree with him. That was a wrong attitude, wrong actions. And let's get the, let's get the playing field ready to go. Then let's move forward. And now number three. And that's where we are here this morning. Now we're going to follow a simple outline that we began last week. We're going to explain what it is and what it is not. We're going to examine, providing biblical evidence, and then we're going to exhort how to actually incorporate these wonderful beatitudes into our life. And so, number three, the third beatitude, and we're going to bring this thought to bear, happiness comes to those who humble themselves before God. Let's read verse number five together, if you would, all right? Ready to begin, verse number five. Let's read it out loud here in the King James Version. Ready to begin. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now let's, uh, let's say that, uh, get your lungs uh, exercised a little bit, all right? Let's say that one more time. Ready? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now let's get a little explanation of background to this statement. And uh, I'm sure that the moment Jesus said this, they were again like, what in the world? A little background. About a half a century, a little more, before Jesus was born in 63 BC. Now, you may know that today they have changed BC to BCE because these uh, atheist scientists, uh, they won't, don't wanna acknowledge Jesus as the, the centerpiece, and so they call it BCE, before Common Era. Not a whole lot unlike the people who take Christmas and put an X there and say Xmas. In fact, I think we ought to not only say Happy or Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas, we ought to say Christmas. There you go. That's the way it really is. But um, the fact of the matter is the church rolls on. About 63 years before BC, before the birth of Christ, Rome came in and just uh, overtook Palestine. Pompey the Great, a leading Roman general and a statesman, was very significant in colonizing the Palestinian area for the Roman Empire. The Jewish independent state that had been hard fought won during the Maccabean period was now gone ugly end. And they, the Israelis were not happy. Canaan, though relatively small, only about 250 miles long at its length, about 75 miles wide as its biggest width, about the size of New Jersey, has always played, from the beginning of the world, has always played an outsized role in world history. 
The, uh, not only was it overcome by Rome, but it was ruled by a bunch of dysfunctional, Roman-loving kings, a family pretty much of kings, known as the Herod kings, or the Herodian kings. In addition, there were four rival factions during that time in Christless Judaism. Now remember, Judaism is not the same as a, a Christ-loving Judaism that Paul and others had. But we find, uh, first of all, there was the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were religious and cultural, mostly cultural traditionalists. They had form over faith. They knew the Bible, but they did not know the God of the Bible. And in addition to that, they added so many oral laws and traditions, it was just terrible. The Pharisees. Then there were the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were the liberals. They pretty much didn't believe the Bible, although they had a religion, kind of a humanist religion. And they were those that were out on the left wing. Then there were the Essenes. The Essenes actually did, all of them actually did some good work, but the Essenes were mystics. They were nature lovers, they were isolationists. That's why they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in some Essene caves. They had, you know, went someplace and said the only answer to society is getting away from humans. Not a whole lot unlike the earth lovers of today. So we have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and then there were the Zealots. The Zealots were political activists. And for the most part, they really didn't care much one way or other about religion. What they were hoping for was a society revolution. We've got to, we've got to get back our land. We've got to take back our country. What they all wanted, and they didn't really care who did it, they all wanted a king, a messiah to come in, riding in on a horse with a big old army and get rid of the Romans and all the pagan religions and they wanted their own little society. Then there was the general populace. The general populace for the most part was uh, a moral majority pretty much. At least moral, maybe not biblical morals, but at least moral from the sense of moral. They were just trying to make a living, trying to make a sense of all these groups and all their craziness. It was a disrupted society. They definitely could use some good news. And so then when this teacher, this rabbi comes and they begin to hear about him, when he shows up there in that little foothill there in the Sea of Galilee area, when he shows up, there was a lot of buzz. And so Jesus introduces this sermon. Really, you might uh, say that how he started would be called a cold open. He didn't have any folksy chat, at least it's not recorded. He didn't kind of, you know, crack a few jokes. Jesus basically starts this way. I can just see him in my mind's eye. It's probably beautiful area, much like ours as far as the weather goes. And uh, I read one thing that said it was probably spring. And so if it was spring, beautiful day, maybe a light breeze, that beautiful azure blue Judean uh, Galilean sky there, the water there. They were listening, and so there they all were. Every eye was focused on this man. He walks over, and the Bible says he sits down with the sign of a judge who's going to make a decree. 
He looks across the crowd. You remember last week I mentioned that it's possible in that kind of a setting to reach 100,000 people without amplification. Probably not that many, maybe several thousand. But there he was. I could just see him looking at everybody. And all of a sudden it says with a loud voice, Jesus, he speaks and he says, how many would like to be happy today? Well, that's a cold open. That's what you'd call a mm, start. Immediately, he starts with a question. Questions are powerful. They're beginning to think. This is kind of an inductive moment. Happy? Yeah, I would love to be happy. Yes, I would love it. He said, did you know that's what you're really looking for? Benjamin, you think you want better crops, but what you want is happiness. What you want, Maccabee, is you want happiness. And so everybody was saying, yeah, we want to be happy. He said, all right, here's how you do it. And he begins to click them off. One, two, three, boom, boom, boom. Staccato. He gives that truth. One, two. Now he comes to number three. And he tells them, here, if you're going to be happy, you're going to have to be one who it gets a meek spirit, a meek spirit. Now, all of a sudden, they were like, what? Meek? Why in the world would I want to be meek? I mean, I already feel overrun. The general populace felt overrun by the Romans. One religion, one faction felt overrun by the other. Husbands overrun by their wives. Wives overrun by their husbands. I mean, the kids overrun. Why would I want to be meek? They kind of, in their mind, thought that meant weak. Now, what does it mean to be meek? The Greek word there is the Greek word praos. It is a word which means easy, mild, soft, a gentle spirit. It is actually the word for a gentleman. In classic Greek, it is used to describe at least four different uh, scenarios. Number one, a powerful animal that's been tamed has been meeked. I mean, this animal is strong, strength, but under control. It is strong. An unbroken colt would be useless. It had to be meeked. Also, an effective medicine that was able to be tolerated. Some medicines are strong, but they're so strong they can't be tolerated. They're not meeked. Then a strong but respectful answer. Even you might say politically correct answer. Meaning we have the power to say something very, you know, uh, inflammatory, inflammatory, but uh, we kind of dial it back a little bit. And then the fourth, uh, what it means is a great wind that has the power to just blow people away but it's calm and it's soft and so that's what the word meek would be. Now let's give a few biblical examples. The Pauline epistles as you know are very typical in the way they go about explaining truth. Paul usually starts with doctrine and then goes to the practical. In fact a little too practical. <laughs> it gets a little intense sometimes. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 1. Here he begins this practical part of speaking. After explaining our position in Christ, 
after explaining the fact of all the heavenly blessings we have, he said, now, here is what hands-on Christianity really looks like. If you have uh, Jesus in your heart, you have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you have all these heavenly blessings, then here's what you need to do. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, that you walk worthy. Underline that. Circle that. Walk worthy. How do we walk worthy? Well, he explains in verse number two. But I would note that it says of the vocation wherewith you are called. If anybody ever asks you, what is your vocation? Say, I am a Christian. Because that's our vocation. Now, I may have a job or a career, but my vocation, that is pleasing the Lord, glorifying my God. That's my daily vocation. Now look at verse number two. With all lowliness and meekness. Every day I am to wake up and my daily walk is to be one of meekness. As you go through life, praos is the Greek word. Go through as a wind, not as a hurricane, but as a soft wind. One that could blow people away, but doesn't. The same idea is pretty much in the Old Testament. Preacher Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29, verse number 19. He was talking to the people about their deliverance that was coming, a deliverance from Assyria. And he said, now just take a step back, calm yourself. I want you to know that God is going to increase your joy if you'll just meek yourself. Look what he says in verse 19. The meek shall increase their joy in the Lord. Now, as all the prophecies, they have a, both a future local look and a future uh, millennial look or even an internal look. And so this could be a millennial verse, but he's also telling them, he's saying, look, if you will dial back your rights, if you will treat others with godly patience, then you'll always be rewarded with a divine happiness from God. Now, that's what it is. Now, here's what it is not. First of all, meekness is not cowardice. If you were to get your dictionary out, and I did a quick look at it, and what I noticed is that it first said overly submissive. Well, that's one definition. Another one said deficient in courage. Meekness, meaning overly submissive or weakness or deficient in courage. So is Jesus really saying, blessed are the cowardly? Uh, no, I don't think so. Happiness is not for the spineless, it's for the spiritual. I think a good illustration is Moses in Numbers chapter 12. The Holy Spirit gives us a biography of Moses, an unusual biography. Maybe not one that Moses especially liked, but look what it says. Numbers chapter 12, verse number 3. Now the man Moses was very meek. In fact, he was meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Now was God saying that Moses lacked courage? Was he saying he was overly submissive? I don't think so. Remember, this is the guy that went into Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, the leader of the world superpower, Egypt. He went in there, he looked at that leader and he said, let my people go. 
I don't think that was a lack of courage. No, it's not a, he, being meek is not gutless. It is not cowardice. Number two, it is not complacency. Some falsely imagine that meekness means we just shrug our shoulders, say, ah, can't do anything about it, I guess we'll just give up. No, meekness is a voluntary submission, not a forced coercion. It is choosing to accept God's ways without murmuring or disputing. It's kind of like the Old Testament song that David wrote in Psalm 25, verse number nine. The meek will he guide in judgment. This great Psalm, David is relaying all these wonderful promises. Those that are wary of self, those that are desiring to be taught of God, those that honestly resolve to follow the Lord, God says you can be expected to be led by God. Tonight we're going to look into the book of Samuel. And you remember the great story. Here he is, a young man, but he gives us a great reminder. Speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. And the implication was, I will do what you tell me to do. It is not cowardice. It is not complacency. Nor is it compromise. Number three, it is not compromise. A truly meek person is gentle and mild in their own cause, but they have a lion's heart in God's cause or in defending others. Our Lord Jesus, he said in the only autobiography that Jesus gave, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he said, take my yoke and upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now, some classical artists, sadly too often gay, falsely portray Jesus as some effeminate person. These soft features, you know, a little face and soft hands. Friends, I promise you, our Lord Jesus was a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. I don't think he went in for manis and petties. And so when they picture him that way, it's not true. Folks, our Savior was a man's man. In John chapter 2 and verse 15, an accurate description of our Lord, but totally untypical, especially today. I think it was Vance Havner said, the average church today is a mild-mannered man talking to mild-mannered people, how to be more mild-mannered. <laughs> and you know, that's what the idea of meekness is sometimes. But look at Jesus in John chapter 2 and verse 15. Look closely now, you'll see him in one of the porticos of the temple. Cool, calm, what's he doing? Jesus is just sitting there braiding. What's he braiding? Is he doing crochet work? Uh, well, sort of. He is crocheting a whip. Not, not crazy, you know, grab the first thing he sees. There, can you imagine walking in, seeing Jesus? Hey, Jesus. Hey, how you doing, John? What you doing? Braiding a whip. What you gonna do? I'm gonna take this and beat the snot out of these people in a few minutes. And, uh, and that's exactly what it says in verse number 15. And when he had made the scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers and overthrew the temples. Some people are always surprised when a preacher or somebody gets a little bit you know, forward and kind of you know, angry or supposedly angry. Folks, look at Jesus. He's not, he's meek while he's taking care of business. 
Meekness is not namby-pamby. Meekness is not rolling over, allowing ourselves to be silenced in this world by the woke mob, I will tell you for sure. Christian humorist J. Upton Dixon, sounds like a fun-loving fellow, but perhaps addressing the compromise he sees too often in the modern church, said this. He said, I have founded a group for weak churches. What's its name? Doormats. <laughs> Dependent organization of really meek and timid souls. <laughs> Doormats. Their motto? The meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay. Their symbol? A yellow traffic light. And the key writings of this book, cower power. <laughs> but the reality is, folks, doormat, no. Meek is not a doormat. Meek actually is exactly the opposite. It is strength under control or strong enough to be gentle. Now, we've explained it. Now, let's examine some biblical evidence. First of all, it is the challenge of believers. In that amazing, powerful third chapter of Colossians, Paul inspires the people and he said, you need to have a lifestyle of meekness. Verse 12, put on, put on. That's something you gotta do. Put it on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy, beloved, tender mercy, kindness, humbleness, meekness. Purpose in your heart to wake up every morning and lay aside any and all resentments, bitterness, just like your PJs, just get rid of them. Put on your street clothes, put on your gentleman clothes. Don't walk around in your old dirty PJs. Now folks, what would you think of me if I were to walk around in my PJs? I mean, you would, well, I guess you'd think I was at Walmart, but um, <laughs> folks, we ought, to, we ought to put on our gentleman's clothes, and that's meekness. It is the challenge of believers, sorry, Walmart, it is the, we like going there, but it is the, well, we shop there. It is the character of Christ. It is the challenge of believers. It is the character of Christ. Matthew 21, verse number five. Behold, the king cometh unto thee meek, sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, if anybody had the right to come in to town with a huge entourage, riding a, riding a big, beautiful white stallion, Riding into the king's capital, it was Jesus. He was the Messiah. He is king. And yet he came there, meek. I think the great gospel chorus captures it best. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the street in shame. They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him. He's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. He died meekly, not weak. He died weak. What a shock it was. There he is, come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That'd be like someone driving around today in a 1958 bug. Crazy. What kind of a person would do that? Explanation, examination, now exhortation. What is the result of meekness? Number one, you'll inherit blessedness. Get this, blessed are the meek. Sometimes we say blessed, but it's the same word, blessed. 
Would you like to be blessed? Then God said, get meek. Take the power that you have, the strength that you have, meek it down, kind of dial it back a bit. Don't give, uh, don't purr a cane force. Take a small, soft wind, and you'll get blessings. Now, I remind you again that the word blessing is a God word. It's not a worldly word. Now, you will talk to me. I talked with a man a few uh, weeks ago, a very well-to-do man, wealthy man, had had a very successful career. He was kind of entering into his senior years, and I, he had a beautiful home and everything, and I talked to him a little about. He must have told me a half a dozen times, I'm blessed. Now, after talking to the man, it's very clear he doesn't really have any time for God. He, used, he appropriated the term blessed. That's not his term. He could say, you know, he's having a nice life or he's had lots of nice things happen to him, but he's not blessed. Because blessed is something that God gives as favor. Now, if we want to just use the English terminology, in that sense, yeah, it's God sends his blessing on the just and the unjust. But it's not a favor to them because of their obedience. It is just his mercy that he reigns on people that are wicked as sin, as well as people who are doing the right thing. But God is saying here, I've got a blessing for you if you'll be meek. Blessings. You'd say, what kind of blessings? Well, the Bible talks about the riches of his wisdom and otherworldly wisdom, the riches of grace, the wisdom of joy, I mean the the uh, riches of joy and of love. Folks, you've never experienced such deep love as when you're right with Jesus. Would you like to be in love with someone and have someone love you? Both of you get as close to Jesus as you can and you'll have a depth of love you never even thought possible. That's what God's saying here. The blessings of love, the blessings of true joy are blessings for the meek. And then... It says, not only will you inherit blessedness, and actually this is an interesting part, you'll inherit earthliness. You actually inherit the earth. Now let's give a, a biblical understanding of this, and then let's make it practical. Originally, God promised Israel a specific strip of land, a seed, a blessing. But even further back, he promised to Adam to the, whole, to the whole human race, dominion. Now, let me just say a word about that, a note about that word dominion. Don't get caught up in this dominion theology, or at least extreme dominion theology. In theory, they said that we have, what is it, eight or nine worlds that we are supposed to have dominion over, folks. Their idea is somehow if we have enough prayer, if we have enough good things going on, that we'll usher in a new millennium. Folks, I promise you, that is absolutely false. Read the book of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Revelation. While pockets of revival are possible, it is clear the last days are perilous days. And then Jesus comes. Folks, I'm looking for the blessed hope, not a Republican president, although I wouldn't mind a Republican president to be sure. Folks, we are looking for not dominion politically, although we are glad that it happens. This verse is saying this, that when we become a born-again believer and practice meekness in our daily life, 
we actually inherit that original inheritance that God intended for us. Millennial, yes. No, actually, we inherit it now. Basically, what he's saying is the earth will begin to work for you. I like that. The earth works for you. You inherit earthliness. It goes well for you. Your crops go better. Your life goes better. Life is better when you're meek. In fact, Matthew Henry, a great commentator, says this is the only verse in the Bible that promises earthly blessings for spiritual activity. And I'm like, whoa, that's a powerful promise. You actually, in fact, he goes on to say, you can ask God for a piece of property based on this verse. If you will be meek, God will give you some earth. Interesting thought. I think it does certainly mean that earth works for you. Let me give you another verse. 1 Corinthians 3, 21. Therefore, no man glory in men. No, for all things are yours. All things are yours. Spiritual things, yes. Natural too. Future things, yes. Present too. A sister in Sunday school mentioned going out for a ride yesterday and seeing the beautiful scenery and the sun and the leaves and the... Did you know that's earthliness? Now, we don't... That's not where, that's not where we're looking forward to. We're, happy, we're looking forward to heaven. But isn't it wonderful how that a Christian can, can appreciate creation and nature more than anybody else? Because when you're meek, you begin to see things like, wow, God is amazing. Look what God has done. That's earthliness. And that's what God's given us. It is the result of meekness. And then the requisite of meekness. It is salvation. How can I be meek? You have to be saved. Psalm 149 verse 4. The meek will he beautify with salvation. It's a simple equation. No meekness, no salvation. N-O meekness, N-O salvation. It's not going to happen. God said you have, in order to be saved, you've got to be humble. And if you're humble and ask God for his salvation, you can be saved. God doesn't beautify unsaved people uh, with sal he doesn't uh, beautify proud people with meekness, with salvation. It doesn't work that way. The requisite of meekness, salvation. Not only salvation, but sanctification. James chapter 1 verse 21 says, Receive the engrafted word with what? Meekness. If we're not meek, if we don't have a humble spirit, we won't listen to God's word. If you don't listen to God's word, you will never change. Ever. Oh, you can have some kind of, you know, earthly, I can do this stuff, but not changing from the inside out. Because the Bible are, and all those Bible verses are God's construction tools. Some of those verses are sandpaper. Some of them are hammers. Some are chisels. Boy, they work on us. And they construct us. They change us. They transform us. They sanctify us. And so happiness comes to those that humble themselves before God. And now with the time remaining, let's see if we can plow through the fourth one. Happiness, number four, the fourth beatitude, happiness comes to those that plead for righteousness. Let's read verse six together. Ready? Let's read it out loud. Ready? 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus was blowing these people away. Meekness? Mourning? What? And now you want us to thirst and hunger? Well, I'm no poor person. No, you need to get hungry for righteousness. Now, some might imagine that Jesus wants everybody to be calm and gentle and, and meek and never, you know, get excited about anything. Jesus said, no, I want you to have your strength under control, yes, but I'm not saying don't get passionate, don't get excited about things. In fact, exactly the opposite. You need to have very, 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 very strong desires. It's just that you ought to have them in the right place. Focus them towards God. He explains, first of all, what it is. It is a hunger. It is a hunger. It is like feeling like I'm going to starve to death. It's the same wording, for example, in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus said the beggar Lazarus was hungering for crumbs. I'm not talking about folks some craving for a mid-morning little snack. I'm talking about starving, this feel of sense of starving. One wise guy said, my wife told me that she wants to give her clothes away to starving children. <laughs> I told her that if your clothes fit them, they aren't starving, honey. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> hunger, I'm talking about hunger here. I'm talking about famished, like an animal that's parched and exhausted and needs some food and some water. David was a shepherd and he had sent me a, a animal that was just thirsty. For example, in Psalm 42, in verse number one, he says, As the heart, the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Then is not like today. You couldn't just go anywhere then and get water like you can today. Well, at least most places, except for San Francisco, where you'll need a vaccine passport. But if any place else you want to go, you can get some water. They couldn't do that back then. And they would get parched. Finding some good water was difficult. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said it so good. Desire is the best discovery of a Christian. What is it that just makes your pupils get big? What is it that just kind of gets your blood going and your heart racing a bit. What is it? They say that some of these new advertising, they're actually looking at you. You know, you have a little screen there and the little thing's looking at you, you know. And they actually see your pupils. And they do all kinds of And they know where your desires lie. I mean, you don't even have to say it anymore. You, have to, you don't have to even punch keys anymore. I'm telling you, folks, our passion tells us what our discovery is. And that's what God is saying here. Are you passionate about God? Maybe that's why the worship leader Asaph in Psalm 73 said it best when he said, Whom have I in heaven? Verse 25. But thee. And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. There are true truths about spiritual hunger I want to leave with you. First of all, hunger is a sign of life. All you have to do is watch 
a little baby when it comes to feeding time. I mean, they might be a calm little baby, but boy, once they know they're going to get fed, they go berserk. Most of them at least. I mean, they are absolutely crazy hungry. It is a longing. It is a natural sign of life. Friend, do you have a hunger for the things of God? Hunger is a sign of life. It is also a sign of health. One of the most important questions a doctor can ask a patient in the course of their exam is how is your appetite? Because appetite is symptomatic of serious issues, a lack of appetite. When a professing Christian has little or no appetite for his Bible, that says something. When they don't care about church or prayer or meditation on scripture, there's an underlying problem there. God says, what do you hunger for? What it is, and now what it is not. Number one, it is not a perverted desire. Now, there are lots of strong desires that go beyond the bounds of good. They're unhealthy. Not all desire is good, not all even spiritual desire. I hear people all the time saying, I'm not going to church, but I'm spiritual. I'm like, okay, you scare me, man. I don't, I'm not into spooks. But uh, folks, there is Lucifer, God's most glorious creation. In Isaiah chapter 13, 14, verse number 13 said, he got all passionate. Thou hast said in thine heart, I will. He had a desire to be God. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. His ambition to be like God, actually to be God. He was hungry, but power hungry. He was thirsty, but thirsty for fame. It is not a perverted desire. It, number two, is not a physical desire. It's a spiritual hunger. You know what Peter compared unsaved people to? He said, unsaved people, and it's very graphic. He said, unsaved people are like dogs eating vomit. I mean, you talk about some graphic language. Second Peter chapter two and verse 22. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that has washed to her wallowing in the mire. He said, think about it. Every generation for thousands of years keeps doing the same thing after the same thing. They're all saying, we're gonna make a better, build back better, let's make it better, folks. You're not gonna make it better unless it gets spiritual. You can pass every law, you can give everybody health care. You can give everybody a food in their belly. I promise you, it is going to be like dogs just eating vomit. It just bat one after another. I mean, they just keep going back, keep doing it and doing it. Folks, everybody's been looking for the fountain of youth, the pot at the end of the rainbow. I always, it tickles me. I, I, for some reason, I love when I watch, read little news articles. I love anything about archeological finds. It's fascinating to see, you know, the things that were there where they were, you know, they just found a canoe I've read in Minnesota or something that's, you know, how many years old and thought, man, isn't that fascinating? But you know what? Every time they find another civilization, do you know they always find the same thing? Pots, beds, food, masks, clothes, some trinkets, offering to some God. Every generation, they never get better. 
They never get the answer. The only ones you ever find that are different are the ones who have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They have God in their life. But everybody else just like dogs going back to their vomit. Generation after generation after generation. He said that's, those are physical desires. And physical desires just don't get it. Now, folks, I love sports. I think there's a lot of good about sports. But, folks, we are in a generation that has just gone goo-goo-gaga over sports. But sports will never change the world. It's just one more thing that people are doing. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 35? He had just fed the 5,000. He said, but you know, everybody, that this is dead bread, right? He's telling everybody. What you need is the living loaf of Jesus. Verse 35, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. And he that cometh to me that shall never hunger. And he that believeth me shall never thirst. Jesus satisfies. Look what it says in verse 6 again, back in Matthew chapter 5. Let's examine this. Blessed are they which do hunger. Notice the present tense. Not yeah, I went to church a long time ago and I felt something. No, do you hunger right now? Just like it says in Matthew 6, excuse me, Luke 6, 21, a parallel passage. Blessed are ye that hunger now. Are you hungry today? Not were you hungry the last time you went to some big seminar. Are you hungry today? God, make me hungry today. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Oh, that I may know him. What, you, the one who saw God on the <laughs> Damascus Road? What, you, who had been uh, taken to the third heaven? You want to know him? Yes. I never get enough of Jesus, Paul was saying. And I want to know him more. My wife and I, you know, we go some places. You eat something and it seems to fill you. But then it's like empty. We like to go to Applebee's and I like that Chinese chicken salad there, you know. It's all full of salad and cabbage. And I mean, it's like a, looks like a, like a big old bag of food. And we eat that. And man, by the time I'm done, I feel like I'm walking out, you know, like that. I mean, an hour later, I need a, I need a ribeye or something. I don't know what it is about that. It just goes like that. But you know what? We ought to be like that with the Bible. Eat a big old chunk of the Bible. And then an hour later, I want to eat some more. I want to eat some more. Someone the other day told me, said, Pastor, I just never get enough of church. Man, I want to be there. How different than the one person that told me, and I, and I love them, but they said, I just, I said, where were you? They, I just needed a, I needed a day off. No. You didn't come to church? No. I said, you needed a vacation from God? What? And uh, it's like, what in the world? I don't get that. Folks, do hunger, for they shall be filled God wants us to be filled. I must close. Let me give you three quick things in conclusion. Number one, if we don't hunger after righteousness, we will never obtain it. God will never force his blessings on you. You've got to want it. The other day, someone offered me a wonderful dessert. It looked great. And I did want it, but I've been kind of trying to watch my sugar a little bit. And I was hemming and hawing. Finally, they said, Pastor, I'm not going to force you to eat it. <laughs> yeah, amen. 
Guess what? God's not going to force you to eat all that wonderful, good food that he has in the word. Number two, if we don't thirst here, we will thirst when it's too late. In Luke chapter 16, the man wanted one drop of water in hell. Have you ever seen one of those signs, last gas for 50 miles? I think you ought to take heed. And when the Bible says you better be saved, because in hell there'll be no second chance. Number three, if we eat too much junk food, you will spoil your appetite. As long as Israel stuffed itself with the garlic and the onions of this world, it did not care about God's beautiful manna. That's why John said, love not the world, neither the things in this world. Maybe we're spending just a little too much time on social media. Maybe we're just too much time looking at the news. Maybe just too many other things, junk food, and we're not hungry for the word. Christian author, renowned pastor, John Piper, and I close with this, said this powerful quote, when God is the supreme hunger of our hearts, he will be supreme in everything. Are you hungry and thirsty for God? May it be so. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Our worship team is going to come. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www. .thehomechurch.net From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.